0: Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. This is a grey Sydney afternoon. It's, uh, what day is it, Andy? Thursday. It's a Thursday Thursday afternoon in Sydney. Uh, I've got a great guest with me, a good friend of mine, a guy I've known for many years. He's been all over the world in advertising. He's a gamer, he's a writer, he's a raconteur, a family man. We have a lot of uh, interesting things from this guy today, I'm sure. So without further ado, welcoming to the podcast my good friend Andy Fleming.
1: Nice to be here and nice to actually have a pint in my hand. Yes, let's sure. do
0: the clink. Let's do the clink. Don't tell anyone that I'm drinking vodka soda.
1: Can I just say that, that I'm very pleased to actually have a pint in my hands? Just just that? Why? Well, no, I'm just saying that I think a pint of Shawnee B. Well, I've heard a distinct lack of pints being involved. So I'm no, very pleased heard. to actually have a pint in my hand with... Only
0: well, we're in a bar here, so apologies if there's a lot of background noise, and I'll probably have to going to have to try and pick up and make lots of uh, changes with noise reduction, etc. Which was what happened. So I started doing a few of them in quiet environments, but uh, this seems to be coming out okay. What have you been doing? By the way, have you been doing? I've things? been doing them in all over the world. I've got two in Nicaragua. I've got Ireland. I've got Paris. I've got here. I've got. I'm going to be doing some in Singapore. I'm on a world tour, so. There you go. You've been in Australia for how long now?
1: Got it. I actually worked out the other day that I've spent, I think, half my life in Australia now. Yeah, so it'd be about 23 years. A fucking long time.
0: Andy works as probably the, I don't know, second or third most senior creative in MNC and who who actually, when I was leaving Sydney, were on a spiral downward. And over the last 10 years, you've... A spiral downward? Well, they were... You'd lost loads of business and it was dodgy. And then suddenly, you guys came roaring back to the point where you're now, I think, for probably four straight years or five straight years, yeah. the most successful yeah. and best company and yeah. in Australia. What, what, what happened there?
1: I think a lot of factors. I think... We obviously had Tom McFarlane and Tom Derry, who, who are remarkable players in advertising, and I think they, you know, they obviously started the company. Um, James Leggett, the new CEO, was something fresh and something new. I mean, the guy is about 30, God, I think he's about 34. But The amazing thing about James Leggett is that, and this is totally true, He'll fucking hate me for saying this. <laughs> he was the body double for Kevin Zabo as Hercules in the New Zealand production of Xena, Warrior Princess. Anyway, he was CEO of Ogilvy in London, and he came over, and I think his, I think his youth, and I think his vitality, and I think his hunger pushed itself out amongst the agency and gave us a direction, a new direction, and and obviously it worked because um, we we did some really good work.
0: So for those of you who don't know what M&C Saatchi is, M&C Saatchi is the business that was set up when the Saatchi brothers, so I'm sure most of you have heard of Sachi and Sachi one of the most famous outages in the world, and back in the day the um, brothers were kicked out of their own company in a sort of Steve Jobs-like coup, and they immediately set up their own company back in the early 90s. So tell me about, uh, you, were t- you were talking about this thing called Clever Boy. What, tell, tell people what that's all about.
1: So, so Clever Boy was a, a, an agency initiative where we, we wanted to try and smash together two of our clients, one of which was Google, one of which was Optus, for the mutual benefit of both. And this idea came out that with, with the, the help of a company that we found in Perth called Sharp Mitigation Systems, who had this this idea that there could be a boy that basically floats in the ocean and basically sends out a signal and works out the kind of the kind of fish that are in the area through sonar, and it differentiates dolphins from sharks and debris from sharks, and so what it does is is basically picks up when a shark's in the area and then sends a signal through the Optus network to a centre that can then actually alert the guys on the beach that there's actually a large shark in the
0: area. So So are these boys now being put in place?
1: You know, obviously it's a prototype at the moment and it's actually in the water. If they can actually go through the vigorous testing that that the government requires, we we hope that that they're on every beach.
0: Can you make one for spiders and snakes?
1: No, I think you just got to, I think you've got to deal with it if you, if you live in Australia. All
0: of you who are afraid to come to Australia because it's got the most actually, vicious animals in the world—at least there's one a, less one that you have to worry about. I actually
1: saw a spider the size of my fucking hand in my toilet yes, the other this day. Does one of the worst things about living in Australia is working out how to get rid of these things. Bagon just doesn't do it. No, no. It. <laughs> they it won't, love not it, <laughs> it won't affect them. What you've got to do is you've got to try and have the guts to put a pint glass over yeah. it and then slip the card <laughs> underneath. And then you've got this gigantic thing yeah. sort of screaming around. Yeah. And then you've got to sort of and throw it. And it's mad then. It's mad. And then you've got to throw it into your
0: garden. What was your, uh, your? Where were you? Where are you from? Actually, I don't really know this. I'm from
1: Brighton. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm my from sister lives
0: in Brighton. Hello, Carol. Well, no, if you're listening.
1: I was. I'm actually from Cookfield, and then I moved to a place called Lewis.
0: Right. And yeah. what was it like growing up there?
1: Fucking fantastic. I mean, Brighton was amazing. I mean, it, it, it's cosmopolitan. It's fun. It's gay. It's it's, it's like yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah.
0: And what were Good your uh, folks doing?
1: My dad worked in a brewery. He was in the Royal Navy for many, many years. Then he worked for Harvey's Brewery in Lewis. My mum was working in social services, so dealing with abused kids and, and that kind of thing. So I think, I think when I decided to get into advertising, the two of them found the whole concept quite baffling. They didn't really understand what advertising was. Yeah, mine was.
0: too, yeah. Were you creative in school? Yeah. I always have you as the sort of guy in school who's got like a little notebook full of little No, robots I was well, like No, I,
1: I was famous for writing very imaginative stories. And I was the first kid in primary school to read all the books in the library. Yeah, I got a little fucking award Star, for that. Yeah.
0: You were saying to me that you, your ambition when you were a kid was to open a bookshop.
1: It was and it sort of still is. But unfortunately, I go into bookshops now and take pictures of books and then buy them on Kindle. So I think I've just destroyed the idea of, of, of me.
0: It's quite strategic what you could be doing, though. Close down the bookshops yourself through your power of reading, only to then re-emerge 15 years later with the most beautiful old-style bookshop when... It becomes retro.
1: I genuinely think bookshops are going to come back. I think there's something amazing about a book mm-hmm. with an amazing cover. There, there's something magical about being recommended a book and then opening it up and then knowing you're going to spend the next week, two weeks, immersed. That was the kind of thing that got me into advertising. I think it was it was reading a shitload and did I you actually, do, did
0: you read for college? Did you go to college? No, I didn't. No, I wasn't allowed to. I didn't go to college either. No, you
1: know I, I was. My parents, but I, I fucked around so much in school, and I and I failed so many exams so I wasn't allowed to go to university because my parents said you're just gonna, it's gonna spend all your money on dope, really, um, which was probably true. Yeah. But I think what it did was it it did accelerate the need for me to get some kind of trade. What what I chose to do, which was against the will of my family was to spend all the money I had going up to the best agencies in London and calling the best crowd of directors in London so often that they just got so utterly sick. was a war of attrition. Yeah, until yeah. they got so utterly sick of the fact that this guy was calling them that eventually see me. And I, and I literally spent, I think, maybe three years learning the craft from some very great names.
0: So what was your first job?
1: I guess it was Sydney, because I don't class being a, a junior in, in London agencies as being a job. I mean,
0: But how the hell did that work?
1: We actually came here because England was just so shit at the time. We being who? Me and Christy Peacock, my, my Okay. And he moved to Australia about six months before I did, and he actually called me up. And I think I was temping at the time to make the money. Right. He called me up on the phone, and I was literally about to walk to the bus station to get a, a bus to Eastbourne and do this shitty temping job and he said yeah I'm on Bondi Beach and I'm just going off for beers and it's wonderful and it's sunny and anyway bye and it was that phone call that made me go fuck it I'm going to move to Australia and, and right. six weeks I was there. What age was that? I would have been 21,
0: right, 22. Okay. So were you scared doing that? No.
1: No. Right. No, I, I think I had to leave. I think England was awful. <laughs> I met Christy in, in Sydney in 92, and we got a job in what was then Shire Day Mojo. But, but simply by walking in, unbeknownst to them, and essentially living at the agency to the point where our smelly socks were hanging up on the washing line. I remember mic. you're
0: quite known for that because the same thing happened... No, no, we,
1: we really did.
0: We I, I really did live
1: at Mojo for a long time and I existed did they know you were living no they didn't you were like no, an I, indigent no he, they, he worked so no, hard but what they didn't realise is we had Findus and what it meant was that upstairs obviously we had this fridge freezer Fish filled with Findus <laughs> and I fucking lived off that stuff and they had a microwave yeah. and they had all these Findus products that obviously the agents so put, they just that, think
0: that you were working really hard because yeah, you were always there but I was
1: existing there <laughs> where did you sleep sometimes in the agency (laughs) (laughs) I had a a sofa in my office and I I, you know I I slept there and we we ate there we had we had a huge bar there and we had these amazing meatloaf things that we used to carve off and so essentially I lived off cheese meatloaf vb and and findus products that I stole from the from the freezer
0: well, you then did move to Singapore right yeah what was that what, what, what caused that
1: well I was coming to the end of my one-year work visa in, in in Sydney and I wanted to stay but obviously being quite young and, and having very little experience it wasn't really on on the cards for me to get sponsorship so I needed to get s- something and at the time Hong Kong and Singapore were looking for, for, for expats yeah and I went through a lot of interviews and an Esther Claire and found a job for me in what was then BSB um, Singapore with um, uh, Rob Gibraltar, who, yeah. who you've, you've interviewed? You me. actually
0: were mentioned. You ended up on the cutting room floor of that uh, oh, conversation. I really? Yeah, and but I was
1: I, that cut was because I
0: knew I'd be talking to you anyway. So, but a phenomenal gentleman.
1: a phenomenal man, and um, I actually still have his letter offering me the job in, in um, BSB Singapore, which was a wonderful yeah. letter. And,
0: and I was, that's where we have massive. He was the guy who took me out of Dublin. Really? To get to join really? MFA, the Bailey Ads, yeah, yeah. No, so he's he's married no, both of us. No,
1: I he's I, I Rob Gibraltar is, is the Bill Clinton
0: of advertising. Yeah, very good. I
1: remember walking in on a Saturday morning once and he was in shorts with his feet up on his desk playing a saxophone. <laughs> it was amazing. He was he was absolutely fucking amazing. Yeah, this guy was, was, was legendary, I love Rob Gibraltar. Being 22, 23... And moving from Australia, England into Asia, you know, with no friends, no family, it's, it's a huge fucking thing. Yeah. And you you sort of need a support network, but you don't really have it. And I'm thrown into this in this into this complete alien culture, which I fell in love with very, very quickly. I yeah. do. Adore, I adored Singapore. Yeah. And I still do. My wife's Singaporean. So you remember like, that
0: trip, did you? Pardon? You met her on that. On I journey.
1: met her. Yeah, I, I did. I met my wife as well. She was a suit in in, in BSB. Yeah, Andy, yeah, one of the bit, great
0: bit. lasting marriages, Saren. Hello Saren <laughs> if you're listening. Two kids and been married for No, I,
1: I remember I remember taking her out on a date and, and all of the expats were going, Did you just go out and date with Sarah, you motherfucker?
0: <laughs> and and I
1: well, yeah, you know, she was she was the best looking girl in the agency and I managed to get on a, go out on a date with her. In fact I remember our first date because I said at the end of the date. Am I the kind of guy you consider going out with? she said no, and that's probably the best thing you can say yeah. to a man like me because you go, "All right, well, I'm going to give There's this." There's the
0: gauntlet thrown.
1: Oh, that's the gauntlet. I'm going to give this a good go. No, I do. I, I, um, I adore. but you
0: got you guys met up there, and then you came back here, got married, you've got two lovely kids, and you've been pretty much here since, right? Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, apart from the advertising piece, you're also a guy who I would say, of all my friends, is probably the guy who has his finger and always had probably most on culture Uh, you used to complain when I was here back in when we were friends back here in the late 90s early 1000s about how difficult it was to get hold of the comedy that we both love and you know the latest shows yeah Tell me a little bit about your whole interest in You're also a gamer. You, 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 if, if anyone wants to know anything about what's going to happen next, Andy's the guy to ask. Because so I want to talk about that on this podcast. I think
1: I have this... I, I used to teach award school for many years. The first thing I'd say to every awards school group was, you have to remain 17 years old. Or let's say 11 years old. You, you have to try and keep that wonder. that fucking wonder for the world that, that I think the world tries to beat out of you. And What I've tried to do for my whole life is keep that that interest in everything, in, in everything that's new and and whether that's tech or comics or films and and, and fuck anyone who says you shouldn't be doing that at your age. Yeah. I think it's important as a creative to to be constantly sucking in everything that's new and different and fun wherever the fuck that comes from and that can come from you know, I've I've actually been influenced by fucking shows my kids watch I think Adventure Time is one of the best shows on TV Spongebob, brilliant Spongebob is amazing I think, you know, virtual reality, gaming the more you suck in the more beauty comes out when you actually need to produce something,
0: I have a question for you, which I think I've always wanted to find the answers because I've never been able to get into gaming. I, I did the old Tomb Raider series back in no, the day. Oh, you, but, you well, know, they
1: were, it's so moved on from me I then.
0: know it has, I know, but back in the day they were pretty good. But I mean, I was just finding I was spending so much time that I don't have stuck behind these heads. Where do you find time to do Um, Like, are you up all night and then just have breakfast and go into work no I, I, sticks I, in your own. no
1: look I mean my wife absolutely despises the fact that I'm a gamer I've always tried to make time for it and I think when everyone's gone to bed and the house is quiet I'll do two or three hours right. of whatever the big game happens to be because I actually think gaming is is actually far more important right now than movies are I think movies have reached a point where they are dull they're monotonous, they're based on what was important last year. I think gaming is is the new frontier of creativity. There are games like The Last of Us, which which if anyone listening to this hasn't played and has a PS4 should fucking play. They are really pushing the envelope with creativity and what and, and and how you can evoke emotions from, from, from the player, emotions that I really, I was amazed by how emotionally attached I was to to characters in, in these games. And remember that, that, you know, compared to a movie, which is, you know, an hour and a half, you're playing these games for over a period of, you know, a few weeks, sometimes maybe 20, 30 hours, yeah. and you become enormously attached to these characters. And because the characters are so well-written, and because so many so many writers from the movie industry have moved in to the crowd, to the to the gaming industry, the writing has got so much better. The empathy has got so much better. The the stories, the storytelling has got, got so much better. I mean gaming ten years ago used to be a B movie schlock, but now it's it's very, very intelligent and very beautiful and um, I've been amazed by how moved I've been, by how shocked I've been, by how scared I've been. It's the most exciting medium right now. I'm not seeing it in the movies. I'm I'm seeing it in games.
0: So where does it go? We're we're, we're actually doing this podcast just as the new Oculus Rift. Uh, You have a funny story about that. Uh, Where does it all go from here? What's your prediction?
1: I will admit that, sadly, I set my alarm for... (laughs) 2.30 2:30 <laughs> in the morning, and I actually ordered the Oculus Rift consumer version at about one minute past 3 a.m. in Australia because I believe it's it's, it's important. I believe it's important to see what people are going to do with it, and I've seen incredibly emotional demos and pieces and films that that, that people have done, and I've seen a a simulation of of, of a man in an office in the 9/11 attacks as as, as a piece of empathy as yeah, a yeah. piece of as a piece of history to try and witness something it shows the the level of ideas that are coming through vr what excites me is what it could do for example for, for kids who are in hospital who you, you know who can't leave those beds i would love to go to disneyland and, and shoot vr 360 yeah. on all the disneyland rides and then actually Start a company that, that allows children to experience Disneyland because they, they won't be able to.
0: We had a uh, a three D James Cameron driven thing happen about eight years ago, which has kind of proved to be a little bit of a fad. I mean, there was three D before, but I Are
1: you guess talking about three D uh, like IMAX.
0: I'm talking about well, and also things like Avatar and stuff like that that came out. But, I mean, I guess they were precursors to this. This is not a fan, right?
1: No, I, I think there's a huge difference between 3D IMAX and, and VR. I mean, before movies started, there were tents in, in, in America where people would walk in and they would see a train on a screen heading towards them and they would run yeah. screaming. <laughs> we are at that level with VR. We are at the very, very birth of a medium that in the next 10, 20 years is going to become so fucking significant that it is going to be able to educate children in in regions that, that are completely without education. It is going to allow you to listen to a, a lecture in, in Harvard when you happen to be in Somalia. It is going to allow you to run across a beach when you're without legs it is going to allow you to fly a fucking f-15 like me when, you, when you'll never fly an f-15 it, it, it is allowing you to do these extraordinary
0: <coughs> so, so, things but one of the points i, I want to make just on that and playing devil's advocate is you know right now we're, we we have the, the entire knowledge of the world in our pocket that there's, a, there's a loneliness coupled with a connectedness that's kind of weird, where everybody is, is sort of staring down at their phones. We're not engaging, we're not talking as much. I mean, the idea that this new technology is going to drive us further, apart from human interaction and into this sort of matrix-like environment, surely must be a worry.
1: That's a very, very difficult question. Have we moved from a social society to an insular society? I think we only have to look to any street in any, in any, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast, walk out onto the street and, and, and see people looking at their phones. I mean, we are becoming distant from each other. I, 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 do, I do agree with that. And I think one of the scariest things that, that I can see, and I can actually see it right here, right now, is, is couples sitting down together, but instead of communicating, they're looking at their phones. Technology has got between us. It absolutely has. But I do like to think that, that VR, and I think I think one of the reasons that Facebook invested so much money in Oculus is that Facebook realised very cleverly that what Facebook does is it's connected me to people that you know I went to school with, yeah, I work with. Yeah. It, it means that we're this, we, you know, we're this society. But but our connection is based on likes a little comments and little fucking yeah i like that too and so suddenly I'm, I'm i'm connecting with people i work with in singapore and new york and london but i think what vr does i truly believe that in two years i'll be able to go Shawnee, where are you i'm in boston all right well i'm in i'm in sydney let's watch apocalypse now right now and we will put on our headsets and you will be an avatar and I will be an avatar but but, I'll, but your avatar will be you and my avatar will be me and we will sit and watch a movie that we love together but with microphones we'll be able to talk about that movie as if we were sitting in a cinema together. And I think that it's...
0: It's like that book you're very fond of.
1: Yeah, Ready Player One. I mean, I, I think Ready Player One is a a wonderful, wonderful book. Is it? Is it a slightly hysterical look at, at, at the dangers of VR and the fact that, of the isolationism of VR? Yes, but I but I do think that it can connect people who are separated by distance. One of the worst things that's, that's obviously happened moving to Australia is that I'm apart from my family and my sister and my, and my parents, who I love very much. And, and obviously I have Skype to talk to them, but maybe... Maybe the fact that that we can sit down together in a virtual living room and hear each other and see each other and watch a program together, something that we all love. Maybe even home videos of us as kids and actually talk about those things There's I mean the that... irony
0: is I suppose back in the day the, the dinner table became a thing of the past when right. we were growing up like kids were running in and there was nothing you know the 50s and 60s everyone sat down for dinner every night and the people uh, you know so yeah. I guess it's a progression the other dystopian element to this is the is the longer 200 year view where do we all become robots or do we all become attacked by robots I mean do we think do you think first of all we'll have a chip in us in the ne- in your lifetime
1: do I think we'll have a in chip in in a brain in...
0: sort of situation
1: I think probably yes. I mean, I think that the uh, and if we want to get heavy, that what science fiction writers call the singularity is upon us. I think the singularity, which is the, which is basically the moment when AI becomes self-aware, and you know, for all you fans of Terminator, self-awareness, and then everything, everything went to shit. I think. The singularity is within maybe 10, 15 years. And that, he, and, and I think people like Stephen Hawking are very concerned about that because it's such an unknown quantity. What does that mean? What does that mean when, it, when a being becomes sentient, when a being becomes aware of what it is? I don't think we're fully... I think we, we, we're, we're smashing into... Technology we don't quite understand. So, in answer to the question, do I think we'll have microchips? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. I have two beautiful kids. If, if someone said to me, and this is fucking, this sounds fucking terrible, but if someone said to, if a doctor said to me, we are going to put a little chip in your son and a little chip in your daughter, and it'll be painless, they'll never know. But what it means is, if they're ever abducted will know where they are and the fucking cops right. will get them, then I would go for it. Right. I, I really fucking would. And I think a parent... Yeah. What, what scares me the most is, is my son walking down a street and getting dragged into a panel van yeah. and me not knowing where the fuck he is. Now, if a chip was in the back of his head, does that mean that should I be... Concerned about the chip in the back of his head, or the fact that it means that I can rescue him immediately? Is that hysterical? Is that wrong?
0: I what don't if I know. said to you that in that future, every per- every abductor would carve the chip out of his head, the first thing they do, and <laughs> throw it in the well? In-
1: now, well, now, it, well, <laughs> well, well, exactly. So, so the first thing that happens to my son is that that gets yeah. cut out. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're now in we're now in hell. Really I know.
0: Are we? <laughs> I know.
1: Um, <laughs> No, so I don't know. Um,
0: Bring it back to that point. We went I mean. really dark. We yet. did. <laughs> I'm trying to make it a little bit of a happy ending. Bring it back to sort of a more happy, maybe place. What do you think about the future for your son? So I'm talking the next twenty years.
1: I—that's that, a very, very difficult question. Jesus, dude. I mean, that—that's that, about as big as it gets
0: no like are you optimistic or pessimistic no
1: I I think I'm optimistic I I have a huge faith in the human race I have a huge faith in in humanity I have a huge faith in what's decent as opposed to what's wrong to quote Jurassic Park life will find a way I think goodness will find a way I think humanity always does a decent thing well I hope so
0: that's a nice place to finish. I apologize for the noise. I think we started this about an hour ago and it was about half the decibels of what we're getting now. A sort of a nightclub has grown up around us here, so apologies if it's been tricky to listen. But I think the key thing I would take out of it is always stay a kid if you want to be creative. Andy Fleming, thank you very much for being thank on the pilot. Surely you'll No worries, buddy.